This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It's found on page 861 in the Bibles there in your rows, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Luke 6, 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And as a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you. Uh, this morning, as Ryan said earlier, we are uh, wrapping up uh, today our Epiphany uh, series in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And next week, we're into the season of Lent and a series on the Old Testament book of Lamentation. So that's where we'll be next week. But uh, in the last couple of chapters in Luke here, we've seen a, you might call it a developing opposition to Jesus. He starts out, and you read Luke, he's, he's wildly popular to begin with, drawing these enormous crowds at first, and, and still is to some extent. But now we're starting to see uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the scholars, other uh, religious leaders, beginning to push back against Jesus. And that opposition is centered around, first, who Jesus associates with. He's with tax collectors and uh, sinners and uh, other ne'er-do-wells, you know, uh, so, so to speak. Uh, then uh, last week we saw part of the opposition is against the demeanor of Jesus and his followers. They seem too casual, maybe not serious enough. They're, they're too lighthearted, too happy, not fasting enough. But then in our passage we get to today, it's opposition to the way Jesus practices the Sabbath. And there is a, what you might call a, a very um, superficial way of reading this passage. And I, I want to bring it up here at the beginning because I want you to avoid it, all right? Uh, the superficial way to read this passage is, ugh, the Pharisees and all their rules, rules, right? And, uh, you know, how moralistic, how legalistic, and then that's it. That's what we get from this text. That is... Okay, listen, there is some truth to this, and we're going to talk about where the Pharisees get it wrong here in a moment. But I just want you to note for a second, I just want you to note here at the outset 
that Jesus' response to the Pharisees is not, the Son of Man has come to do away with the Sabbath. Jesus' response is not, the Son of Man has come to help us get beyond the Sabbath. But rather, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And I would submit to you that this is very good news. Jesus has not come to do away with the Sabbath. He's come to fulfill it. He's come to give a deeper expression. In some ways, he's saying, I'm all about the Sabbath. And this is good news because this is exactly what you and I need. This is exactly what you and I need. I bet you've had this experience, right? You, uh, you muscle through the week and uh, can't wait for the weekend. But finally, the weekend arrives and you're in a terrible mood. Nasty, you're testy, you're sniping at the people in your life. You go out to eat with your friends, you go to a movie, you go see some music, again, with people that you really like to be around, and you just find yourself grumpy and restless. Why? Or, finally, you break away for that vacation. You worked extra hard beforehand to pass off all your duties at work to coworkers, make sure everything's covered before you go. You were meticulous about this so that you can go away and just really forget everything uh, about your work life. Uh, you saved up your pennies all year for this, and now you're on the beach. But before you can get that first frozen cocktail, before the first wave washes over your sandy feet... You are locked in a verbal death match with your spouse or your kids or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your friends or whatever. Why? You know, we, we assume that if we could just take a break from our normal routine, if we just take a break from work, if we just plan some fun, we'll automatically relax. But it's more complicated than that. You can't downshift so easily. There's some inner machinery that keeps spinning and keeps going inside of us, even when we shut down on the outside. To rest, to deeply rest, it takes wisdom, it takes focus, it takes intentionality. There's an old uh, Seinfeld episode. Now, some of you don't even know what that is. Uh, You're too young for that. Seinfeld was a show a lot of people watched in the 1990s, all right, just to... That's enough context for what you need. So in this episode, uh, Kramer, who is the, uh, like the idiot neighbor, again, you, you have these kind of things in lots of shows, right? Kramer decides he's going to get all of his sleep in naps, 20-minute naps every three hours. So he's napping eight times a day, but he's never really rested because he's never getting any deep sleep, right? He never gets into the REM sleep, you know, that we're told we need. He sleeps often. He doesn't sleep deeply. Finally, Kramer passes out, sitting next to his girlfriend on the couch. She leans over to try to kiss him, and he's like just in a coma-like, you know, passed out kind of state. So she mistakenly assumes that he's dead. She calls a mobster friend. They wrap him in a, uh, like a rug or something, and they toss him in the Hudson River. And uh, he wakes up, you know, in the water. Jerry, I was thrown in the river, you know, that kind of thing. Point being... How often you nap, it's, it's not that, it's, it's the depth of rest. Eight naps don't matter because it's the depth of rest that matters. Are you experiencing deep rest? Not just breaking away from work or from your normal routine, but are you being restored? Judith Shulovitz wrote an article a while back called 
bring back the Sabbath. I heard another pastor talk about this recently, and so I went back and read this article this week. I think it was from 2003. Bring back the Sabbath. And Judith uh, Shulovitz, she's a, a secular Jewish woman, a professional New Yorker, and she writes at the beginning of the article about her life as a kid, and for the most part, she was trying to escape from her religious upbringing, and particularly from uh, what she believed to be oppressive religious practices, including, among them, uh, practices of the Sabbath. But now she says, as an adult, she's rethinking things. And this is what she writes. I've got a little bit of a quote on the screen for you there. About a decade ago, I developed a full-blown weakened disorder. Perhaps because I'm Jewish, it came on Friday nights. My mood would darken until, by Saturday afternoon, I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping of tales of misadventure and the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself. After a while, I got lonely and did something that, as a teenager profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. She goes on to say that while some people suffered under too many Sabbath regulations, she suffered under the lack thereof. And she continues, Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. As the cat in the hat says, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. And she goes on. She says, the rules about the Sabbath do not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habits. Long introduction. But let's talk about the importance of Sabbath rest this morning. We're going to talk about, first, the way the Pharisees miss it. Secondly, how Jesus points us to the true nature of spiritual rest. And then finally, practically, what do we do, right? What do we do in response to this? All right, so first, the Pharisees. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus and his disciples are going through a field, we're told, And they pluck out some heads of grain, they rub them in their hands, and they eat the kernels. And the Pharisees were told they object to this. Now, going back to the Old Testament law for a moment, Deuteronomy 23 makes clear that this is not stealing. That's not what this is about, right? This is not that this isn't their grain. um, Because Deuteronomy 23 makes it clear that wayfarers, travelers, can help themselves to grain. This is cooked into the law of God, built into the Old Testament law as a way to care for the poor, as a way for strangers and aliens and travelers to have a way of, of um, uh, providing sustenance right, for themselves. So and the Pharisees would know this. Is it is not that they, they're being accused of stealing here. It's not that they eat from a field. It's that they did it on the Sabbath. Right. This is the objection. Now, what is the Sabbath? All right, the institution of Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments, right? So it's one of the biggies in the Old Testament law. It's the fourth commandment. And actually, it's stated pretty simply, what are the requirements of the Sabbath? Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20. It says, uh, again, this is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. On the Sabbath you should not do any work. Now, the controversy around Jesus' time was what constitutes work? And so an elaborate tradition had developed as a way of being a hedge around the law to make sure people didn't accidentally break the fourth commandment, accidentally break the law of God. There was all kinds of regulations about what work was. 39 forms of work were called out and forbidden by these religious traditions. Among them, reaping, which Jesus and the disciples did when they plucked grain from the fields. Threshing, which is what they did when they uh, rubbed it in their hands. Winnowing, which is what they did when they threw away the bad part, the part that you couldn't eat. And then eating prepared food. As one commentator says, four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful, (laughs) which is what was offensive to the Pharisees. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 3. And by the way, you you never really want to get into a back and forth with Jesus. It's not going to go well for you in this regard. Uh, But this is what happens here, right? Verse 3. Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those with him. So Jesus answers this with a story from scripture. Tells the story of David eating the bread of the presence, sometimes called the showbread, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now this bread, the bread of the presence, was prepared specifically for the worship that would happen in the temple, and only the priests were allowed to eat it. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 24. I noted sort of in the first service, you know, if you do those Bible in a year plans, you're probably right right to Leviticus right now, and this is where everybody starts to lose steam. Keep at it, because see, it helps. You can understand these kind of stories too. Well, Jesus' point here is that the need of David and his band overrode the technicalities in the law. And his point also is no one blamed David for doing this. He's not condemned anywhere in Scripture. In fact, he has the blessing of the high priest at the time. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 21. David was a desperate, famished refugee fleeing from the wrath of unjust King Saul. He was in need of food. And human need must not be subordinated to barren legalism. And the Pharisees missed this. And in Matthew's account of this story, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus specifically goes to Hosea chapter 6 to make his point, where the prophet says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees' wooden legalism makes them miss the forest for the trees. It's not enough to know the letter of the law, Jesus is saying. You must, with wisdom, apply the spirit of the law. A more modern example uh, might be from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know that name, German theologian and pastor. Bonhoeffer was part of the resistance uh, to the Nazis, and uh, when the Nazis took over the church, the state church in Germany, they made it the Reich Church. Bonhoeffer led an underground seminary of resistors uh, in the church. And later he was executed for this at Flossenburg, uh, the concentration camp. But Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian, also an ethicist, and he wrote a book on ethics. And he talked about this need to apply the law uh, with wisdom. 
And uh, he said, for example, he gave, the, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he gives the, um, the scenario. He says, you know, God's law tells us uh, we should not lie. It's unequivocal, right? We should not lie. We are to be people of the truth because we have a God of truth. It is a denial in some sense of our maker and, uh, and, and, and us as image bearers of that maker to not tell the truth. You should not lie. Bonhoeffer says also the law tells us that we should preserve life and we should protect life. So here's his scenario. He says, what do you do when the Nazis come to the door and they ask, do you have any Jews in the basement? Now Bonhoeffer says, a wooden legalist is stuck in this moment, right? I have to tell the truth. That's what it says. It's unequivocal. There's no caveats. I have to tell the truth. I have to tell the truth. And Bonhoeffer says, what do you do in that situation? He says, your duty as a Christian is to lie your rear end off, right? Why, right? Because we need to apply with wisdom the spirit of the law. Don't miss the forest for the trees. And this then brings us into the second episode in our account this morning, starting with verse 6. It's another Sabbath day, a change of venue for Luke. We go from the grain field now to the synagogue, and Jesus is teaching. And a man comes in while Jesus is teaching and comes with a withered hand, some sort of muscular atrophy or disability. And the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see what he will do. And here we get a glimpse in verse 7 of their motives, because it says, so that they're watching Jesus, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. In other words, this is not hey, we're open here. We, we want to see uh, what Jesus will do. We're open to, to hearing his opinion on this. This is not uh, even good faith disagreement with Jesus. Here we learn they're out to get him. They're scrutinizing. They've got made up in their minds, right, that he's guilty and they're just looking for a reason to bring the charge. Leon Morris put it this way. They were interested in the accusation, not in the healing. Ken Hughes says the self-righteous mind is not interested in mercy. And what a terrible way to live that is. They're so set on their gatekeeping and their condemnation and their scrutinization of Jesus that they miss the very thing that God is doing. Verse 8 says that Jesus knows their thoughts and so he has this man come forward, the man with the withered hand. And then in verse nine, he speaks to them all and he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? In other words, this man is living an impaired life. Jesus says, should we, out of Sabbath concern, not do good to him? Should I not give and restore life? And then in verse 10, he heals the man. In verse 11, it says, they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Another translation says they were beside themselves with anger. They just saw a miracle. And they're filled with fury. Someone's life is dramatically changed for the better. And they're plotting Jesus' demise. And being right is more important than doing good. We have misunderstood God's law and applied it inappropriately. The Pharisees, you see, they missed the point of the Sabbath. But again, Jesus doesn't dismiss the Sabbath, but rather he says, and this is our second point, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 5, he said to them, the Son of Man 
is Lord of the Sabbath. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the one to whom all the Sabbath regulations point. I am all about the Sabbath. I'm the one who can give you the deep rest of soul that you most need. I am the Lord of rest. And this is why we can't just talk about all the ways the Pharisees are wrong and then congratulate ourselves for not being legalists and then move on from the text. Because if you do it that way, right, you actually miss the most important part of this teaching. The teaching here in Luke chapter 6 is that if you want rest, you have to go to him. If you want rest, you have to go to Jesus. And if you have gone to him and you still don't have rest, then we're not making use of what we have. You haven't taken a hold of what you have. You haven't understood what you have. Augustine, the Fifth century African bishop wrote one of the most, or fourth century, I guess, fourth century, yeah. Uh, he wrote one of the most important lines in all of literary history, really. It comes up right at the beginning of his memoir of the Confessions. He says this He says, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What does he mean by that? Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Well, let's go back to. Judith Shulovitz for a minute. Remember her article is called Bring Back the Sabbath. And she writes this. She says, when Sunday was still sacred, it's just, she's moved, by the way, from talking about her Jewish synagogue experience to talking at this point about uh, Christians in, in Budapest, in Hungary. And she said, when Sunday was still sacred, not only did drudgery give way to festivity, to family gatherings, and to worship, but listen to this, but the machinery of self-censorship Shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Now that is a phrase. The Sabbath, she says, shut down the machinery of self-censorship, stilling the eternal murmur of self-reproach. Now what does she mean by that? It's not guilt, I don't think. I don't think she's talking about shame. I think she's talking about this desire that I think we all have somewhere to prove ourselves. This desire to be enough, to do something that would make us finally feel like we've done enough. The need to prove yourself to yourself or to prove yourself to others. And she's suggesting that's why we can't get this deep rest. Because it's always working. That's why you can't get the REM sleep, the REM sleep for your soul. That's what's bringing the weariness. If you're always trying to prove yourself to yourself and to others, it'll never be enough. There's always some way that you're going to doubt whether that's enough. So it never shuts down that inner machinery. All the vacations in the world won't do it for you. There is a spiritual fatigue that just sticks with us. Now let's go back to the fourth commandment for a second. Exodus 20. Exodus 20 says we should rest to follow the example of the God in whose image we are made. Exodus 20 verse 11 says this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It says God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. Now that's a reference 
back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very opening pages of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates the cosmos, Genesis 1, but then it gets to Genesis 2 and it says, God finished his work and he rested on the seventh day. God rested. Now, what does that mean? I mean, when we rest from our work, we rest because we're tired. But God never gets tired, so that can't be the reason, right? What does this mean? Well, each of the first, if you read Genesis 1, each of the first six days of creation, God makes something, right? Several things, usually. He makes something, and at the end of the day, he pronounces a benediction. He says, and it was good, right? And this happens over and over again. That's the refrain for the six days. Makes it, looks at it, it's good. It's good. It's good. That's how each of the days ends. But then you get to the end of the seventh day, and it doesn't say it's good anymore. Instead, it says, and God rested. So God rested not because he was tired. He wasn't. He rested because he was satisfied with the goodness of what he had made. It was finished. It's good. And so he could rest. So getting that Exodus 20 kind of rest, real rest, spiritual rest, deep rest, it only comes when you can be satisfied, at peace with the work of our lives. Now, let's zoom ahead now to the New Testament for a moment. Hebrews chapter 4 is a commentary on that beginning verses of Genesis 2 and ultimately on the fourth commandment. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4, starting with verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God does or did from his When we enter this kind of rest that Hebrews 4 is talking about, we rest from our works in the same way that God rested from his. When God rested after the work of creation, it was because he was satisfied. It was good. What was done was finished. And the gospel says that if you come to know Jesus Christ, if you are united to Jesus Christ, he pays for all your sins in his work on the cross for you. He takes your sins, he takes your shame, and he nails it to the cross. And even more, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ comes to be draped on you like a new set of clothes. You're clean because you are identified in him. And so when God looks at you, he sees you clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so then the question is, what is left to be done to make yourself clean, to make yourself right? And the answer is in the gospel, nothing. There's nothing left to do to make yourself right with God. That's why, by the way, when Jesus Christ on the cross cries out, it is finished. It's all very good in him. Spiritual rest for the Christian is to shut down the machinery of self-censorship. It's stilling the inner murmur of self-reproach. Why? Because all that needs to be done for your salvation, all that needs to be done To make yourself clean, all that needs to be done to restore your relationship with God has been done in Jesus Christ. And so over your life, God has pronounced, I am satisfied. It's very good because you're clothed in him. And this is why Jesus can say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. You see, the Sabbath day is meant to point us to this, to point us to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, the source of true spiritual rest. The irony in the Pharisees is they're actually exhausting themselves in trying to keep a day of rest. They're exhausting themselves on focusing on their work to keep the Sabbath when the very nature of the Sabbath is to point to his work and making rest for us, rest for our souls. But then let's talk about the practicalities for a moment, just as we close. What does it mean to practice the Sabbath? Because even if we avoid the legalism of the Pharisees, and if we are led to believe, right, that there is a a deeper reality of rest that we can only find in Jesus, even if we get those two things, there is still some sense where the open question is, how are Christians called to practice the Sabbath? What does that look like? What does it mean to practice Sabbath? Remember, Jesus doesn't say, I'm doing away with the Sabbath. He doesn't say, I'm here to help you get beyond the Sabbath. But rather, the Sabbath should point to me, to Jesus. So what does it look like then for a Christian to obey the fourth commandment, right? To practice Sabbath rest. Well, I'll just give you a couple of quick things. And it's quick because I think actually the commandment in Scripture is pretty quick too and pretty straightforward and pretty clear uh, if we don't uh, indumbrate it with a bunch of extra things, all right? Really quickly, what does it say? Uh, don't work, right? And if we're talking about what does it mean to practice Sabbath, most simply don't work. Six days you shall work, Exodus 20 says, and one day you should cease from your labors. Now we beat the drum here uh, just a moment ago that just having a day off doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to have spiritual rest. That said, the truth is you still need a day off. You really do, right? You're, you're created that way for that rhythm of work and rest. You're created to need a day off. And the Sabbath then is a great gift to you, meant for your refreshment, meant for your restoration. I think as Anne Lamott says, you know, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a little while, <laughs> including you. That's what the Sabbath is meant to be. But it's not only restoration, but the Sabbath is actually also a sign of liberation. There are two places in the Old Testament where the Ten Commandments are laid out. One is Exodus 20. The other, Moses is writing later on, he's, he's recasting uh, or re, uh, rehearsing, let's put it that way, rehearsing the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he restates the fourth commandment, but he, he adds a different emphasis or, or another emphasis, an additional emphasis. Let's put it that way. This is what it says, Deuteronomy 5. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now think about that for a second. You were slaves, now you're free, therefore keep the Sabbath. How does that logic go together? You were slaves, now you're free, therefore keep the Sabbath. Why does that make sense? Well, because slaves don't get a day off. So if you don't keep the Sabbath, You're living like a slave. You might be living like a slave to your job or living like a slave to your own self-importance, right? I can't take a day off. Everything's gonna fall apart if I do. 
living like a slave to your own self-judgment, living like a slave to the expectations of other people around you. Moses says you have to drown the inner fearful voice with a louder one by saying, no, I am a slave no more. I'm taking this day off, a day as an act of liberation. My work doesn't define me. My responsibilities don't define me. Christ alone defines me. I'm taking a Sabbath to celebrate him who set me free. So first, don't work. But secondly, all right, the, the command for Sabbath is not only negative, but it's also positive. Do worship. It's part of how we separate a Sabbath from just a day off. We worship, and in worship, we're reorienting ourselves to God, to the living God. We're also telling ourselves the story of who we are in relationship to him. Let's go back to that Judith Shulv. I'm getting a lot of mileage out of this article, but um, it's a good one. Here's what she says. She says, not even our group leisure activities can do for us what Sabbath could once be counted on to do. Religious rituals do not exist simply to promote togetherness. They are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. She's saying keeping the Sabbath is designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. That's part of what we do when we come to worship, isn't it? Is to retell ourselves a story of who we are, whose image we bear, who has gone to the cross to redeem us who we belong to, we're retelling ourselves the story that written over our life in Jesus Christ are the words, it is finished. And thus we can cease from all our self-justifying labors. So don't work. Do worship. Also do feast. Isaiah 58 says, if you call the Sabbath a delight, And the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth to feast. And listen, I'm not going to go on about this. We talked about feasting all last week. So if you want to hear more about feasts and listen to last week's sermon, which is all about feasting. But the important part here is that the Sabbath is a feast not a fast. It's something to be received as a gift, not a work to perform. It's not something you earn. It's something you receive. It's a grace. And so we feast, we celebrate. And then finally, what do you do on the Sabbath? How do you keep Sabbath? Well, you do good. That's why Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Sabbath itself is meant to be restorative for you. But then also when given the opportunity, it can be restorative for others that you come into contact with. So by all means, if the opportunity arises, take the chance to play a restorative part in someone else's life. That's at the very heart of the nature of Sabbath rest. So let's continue to worship this morning. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and prayer, and then we'll come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment. The band's gonna come up and lead us in another song as we do. But would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for this teaching that the Son of Man has not come to do away with rest, but indeed he is the way to real rest, spiritual rest. And we know that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And so we pray this morning as we continue to think on these things, as we continue to contemplate the nature of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, that he is really our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. 
And as we contemplate the significance of that, I pray, Lord, that we would find some rest for our souls, that we would be able to lay our, our deadly doing down, as one of the old hymns says, that we would be willing instead to trust in what you've done for us. We pray that even as we sing and come to the table in a minute, that we might find a deeper measure of the rest that you provide for us in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. We pray now in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.